The Eagle and Child, episode 43. After Hours with Joe Heschmeyer. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. Normally, I'd be here with my co-host Matt, but today is another After Hours episode. As you recall in these episodes, I interview C.S. Lewis authors and enthusiasts. You might recall a few months ago, I interviewed the author Justin Wiggins following the release of his new book, Surprised by Agape. Today, I'm joined by Joseph Heschmeyer. Welcome to The Eagle and Child. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Joe and I have known each other for quite some time. I think we first met in person sometime in 2008, but I'd been reading his blog for quite some time before that, the provocatively titled Shameless Popery. But for those listeners out there who haven't had the privilege of knowing you for as long as I have, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, well, um, yeah, as you said, my name is Joe Heschmeyer. I work for a group called Holy Family School of Faith Institute, better known just as School of Faith. And we provide evangelization to help people grow in friendship with Jesus Christ and hopefully through that, lead them into deeper friendship with one another uh, and through that, leading one another into relationship with Christ. But yeah, before that, I was a seminarian. And before that, I was a lawyer in D.C., which is when I met you. Could you share with us a little bit about your faith journey? So we grew up in a Catholic household. We went to Mass every Sunday, and occasionally we would dabble in such things as the rosary. Uh, We also would pray together as a family. But um, this wasn't a golden age of catechesis and formation in the church. And I managed to make it to adulthood with having very little idea of why Catholics did the things they did. Um, I had been a debater in high school, and my mom would tell you long before that. Uh, And so the notion of just doing things because was really intellectually and spiritually dissatisfying. Uh, Fortunately, my RA in college was one of my closest friends. He is actually the priest who's going to be marrying me in a little under a month. And uh, he married me to someone else. Oh, okay. That makes way more sense than what I was thinking. Yes. Uh, he is three years older than me, and he was on my debate team in high school and recruited me for the debate team in college. And so we would drive the 75 minutes or so from our homes to college. Um, when, you know, we'd come in for breaks and everything. And the whole time I would just pepper him with questions about why Catholics did A, B, C, D, E. And for the first time in my life, I found someone who was prepared to kind of give an intellectually coherent and winsome answer. Uh, I I remember being struck, you know, as a debater, like, oh, wow, like this actually makes sense. So long story short, it led to something of an intellectual conversion and um, reading and explaining the faith to uh, Protestants, including a Protestant professor of mine, was really good at deepening that intellectual side. That was a sort of precursor to a deeper um, spiritual conversion of heart which uh, was the result of a few things. Uh, Father Richard John Newhouse's book, Catholic Matters, and a mass at Our Lady of Angels in Woodbridge, Virginia, were pivotal parts of that. So the conversion of heart followed the intellectual one. But Lewis actually played a big role in... uh, So a lot of the kind of conversion of heart was associated with the fact that I was working at a law firm at the time. I wasn't a lawyer yet. I was working in the records department. But over my lunch break, I would go to Barnes & Noble, 
And I would uh, just take a book from the bookshelf and read it in the cafe while I ate, <laughs> which apparently is frowned upon, but I didn't really think anything <laughs> of it at the time. And then I'd put the book back. They didn't get the money for the books, but they did get the money for the uh, food. Um, I bought all of one book, I think, during that summer from them. Uh, but I would, I, one of the books I picked up was Mere Christianity, and I was totally blown away by it. Since then, I've probably bought it two or three times. So I like to think I made up for it. <laughs> But when you bought it, did you buy it from Barnes & Noble? I haven't. <laughs> I, think I, I think that money uh, went to Amazon instead. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, let's get down to business and the main reason that you're here on the show today. Throughout the course of Mere Christianity, particularly Book 4, Lewis explains what it means to be a Christian, specifically what it means to become a son of God. He makes the very bold statement that the Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. He contrasts the natural life that we receive from our parents, which he calls bios, to the supernatural life which we receive from Christ, which he calls zoe. He tells us that this Christ life is caught, so to speak, by proximity, and it's transmitted through humanity as a kind of good infection. Actually, earlier in Book 2, he gives some of the ways that this supernatural zoe life is transmitted to us, through belief, baptism, Holy Communion. He spends a lot of time in Book 4 comparing the transformation that this brings to that of toy soldiers or statues coming to life, being transformed from tin or stone into flesh. And as Matt and I have discussed these chapters, I've brought up the theological term which has been traditionally used in Eastern Christianity to describe this transformation, theosis. And last July, Joe came to San Diego and he gave a phenomenal talk on this very subject. And he entitled it, That Man May Become God. And I think it surprised many people as to how fundamental, how central this idea is to Christianity, causing us to re-examine many Bible passages and read the text with a fresh understanding. It was because of this talk that I wanted to invite Joe onto the show to help us fully understand the biblical basis for theosis, because it's something that Lewis doesn't really try to do. Yeah, I would say in terms of Lewis's connection with scriptural proofs, he's a little clearer in the sermon, The Weight of Glory, and I would really recommend that. It's one of, I think, the best descriptions of theosis I've seen in any modern author. Um, but yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the scriptures. So I would start with 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. So one of my favorite passages, he just says, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So he starts with the already radical cause of divine filiation, that we can become sons and daughters of God. That is already a very provocative idea in Christianity. And he says, that's what we are now, and what's going to happen is unimaginable. We haven't even seen it yet. But we know we're going to be like Christ, and we'll be able to see him as he is. So that, in a nutshell, is the whole idea of theosis, that we are already sons and daughters through baptism, and that we become ever more like Jesus, uh, such that we become like him. And this is sometimes referred to as glorification or divinization. 
glorification is sort of the safe word for it, and the other two just mean becoming God or becoming godlike. And um, I think one of the verses we don't normally think about in this context, but really means the same thing, is Galatians 2.20, in which St. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, that's the heart of theosis. It's not um, we become some rival god to god. It's not this Mormon idea of you become a god and get your own planet or universe or whatever. I don't get my own planet? That's so sad. Yes, I know. It's better than that. Uh, that you get to be a participant in the one and only divine glory. But you get to actually share in that glory uh, precisely by not trusting in your own devices to get there. So we already experience this in big ways and small now in the life of holiness. If you look at the holiness that's hopefully present in your own life in the way that's grown, hopefully, <laughs> that holiness isn't coming from you, but it is your holiness. There really are saints and you really are made more holy, which is to say, made more like God. But it's not something that you're doing through something originating in you. You're cooperating with this infusion of grace. So Athanasius has a really good distinction here. He says that uh, though we are men from earth, yet we are called gods, not as the true God or his word, but as has pleased God who has given us that grace. And he compares it to the same way that we can be called merciful or good. Even though true mercy and true goodness is a divine attribute, we participate in it and can therefore be called merciful and good. So if you think about it in that way, we're not saying you become some separate God. We're saying you participate in godliness such that you become godlike. Okay, so by cooperating with God, we receive his life and are thereby raised to a whole new level. Exactly. Um, St. Paul, he also says in Romans 8, uh, verses 14 to 17. You'll notice this same movement from divine filiation to theosis. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So that's pretty explicitly saying there is this connection between divine filiation and also between that and suffering that leads to this glorification along with Christ. That's the very heart of, of what we're describing here, the very heart of what Lewis is getting at and the whole notion of ten men being made flesh. Um, if I can give you maybe just a couple more scriptures. Lay them on us. Hebrews 2, verses 9 to 12. Uh, but we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one origin. 
This is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise thee. So again, it's that notion that we experience this glory along with Christ. It's not just that we're like, hey, hooray for you. We're actual participants in it. Um, this is maybe even clearer in a few other places. Second Peter is one that's regularly pointed to. Uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. There it is explicit. God partakes of our human nature so that we can partake of his divine nature. That's just another way of saying God became man so that man can become sons of God or can become God. I do wonder how many Christians, if you polled them on the street, would say that the purpose of Christianity is to become a partaker of the divine nature. I think if you told them about it, they'd be more likely to associate that with some kind of paganism. That it doesn't sound like what we've heard the Christian gospel is. You know, we'll sometimes hear the line, you know, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, but God is ready for those who love him. But in the passage, uh, it's 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 10, Paul is talking about theosis. He says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. And then he goes on to explain how it's so unimaginably better than anything we've experienced or can even imagine. So this, I mean, I mentioned this in the talk that you described in San Diego. If, uh, if I were to say to you, I want you to visualize hell, there's a pretty good chance you can come up with something pretty vivid and horrifying. But if I said visualize heaven, it probably kind of stinks. It probably isn't somewhere you'd really want to spend a long time. Unless you really liked clouds and harps. Yes, if you're an avid harpist, Sanctity sounds amazing. And if you like sitting on cloud, I mean, it's, it's absurd, right? But that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in. Um, as a young man, Billy Graham used to preach about heaven by saying, we'll be driving down the uh, gold-paved streets with pink Cadillacs. But it's such a hideous image that you just think, oh, please, no. Like, <laughs> now, later, he, he realized the absurdity of this kind of idea of heaven. But the point is, all of our ideas of heaven, uh, as St. Paul says, are necessarily somewhat absurd and limited and even insulting to the idea of heaven. That the best we can say is just, we will become God for all intents and purposes. We'll, we will come to partake in the life of God so much that we can say with St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So much so that someone who looks at you just sees another Christ. They see Christ made present in another way. Uh, that the incarnation of Christ continues through grace in the life of the saints. Now, obviously, we don't worship the saints. It isn't coming from them. But they really are participating in grace. And uncreated grace is the life of God. I think this point about the source of the grace is crucial to emphasize. I remember hearing Peter Kraft, when talking about Mary, compared her to the moon. Each night, the moon shines down upon us this brilliant light, but that's not where the light comes from. The moon is reflecting the light which is coming from the sun. 
yeah, we talk about moonlight, but we could just call it sunlight and that wouldn't be inaccurate. And in the same way, Mary reflects the light of her sun, S-O-N. How should this idea of theosis change our understanding of our Christian journey? So many times when I talk to Catholics, there's this sort of C-minus Catholicism, where it's just, what do I have to do to pass the class? We're, we're happy just being mediocre and hopefully not spending too long in purgatory. Purgatory is this thing we have in the West, just for the clarification, David. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Thank you very much. <laughs> so, but it's this really like weak, diet sprite version of sanctity, where it's just, uh, you know, so watered down that you just think, what's even the point? And that's just not what we're called to. If your vision of heaven is really weak, then it's very easy to fall into the mentality of, well, I don't know how good heaven is, but I know how good sin is. So how much sin can I get away with and still make it into heaven? But on the other hand, if the whole life of sanctity is now and hereafter, being a participant in the life of God, being able to make divine mysteries manifest, and if each person is a unique uh, manifestation of that and a, a unique mission in that, that really does change the whole meaning of what it is to be holy, where it's no longer just about my individual salvation and no longer just about making sure that I pass the test. It now becomes something much deeper than that. Pope Francis says it really well in his recent apostolic exhortation. Uh, this is paragraphs 19 and 20 of Gaudete et Exultate. He says, a Christian cannot think of his or her mission on earth without seeing it as a path of holiness. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. He's quoting 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 there. But then he says this, each saint is a mission planned by the Father to reflect and embody at a specific moment in history a certain aspect of the gospel. That mission has its fullest meaning in Christ and can only be understood through him. At its core, holiness is experiencing in union with Christ the mysteries of his life. It consists in uniting ourselves to the Lord's death and resurrection in a unique and personal way, constantly dying and rising anew with him. And so, in other words, everything Christ experiences on this earth, in some way, shape, or form, he makes present in the lives of the saints. So Pope Francis goes on and says, Christ enables us to live in him all that he himself lived, and he lives it in us. That's a radical way of understanding sanctity, that you are making the mysteries of the life of Christ present in your life. And so I think good fodder for prayer is to ask God what mystery he wants to make present in your life today, or what mystery is he making present? It may be a sorrowful mystery, it may be a joyful one, it may be a glorious one. But at some point, your life is intersecting uh, with the gospel. I think it's pivotal not just for understanding holiness, but also understanding Scripture. Because it's easy to think of Scripture as sort of a dead letter. You know, this is stuff that happened 2,000 years ago to a bunch of people who are in heaven now, hopefully. But in fact, Scripture is alive. And it's not just written about the past, it's written about the present. And it's not just moral advice for our life but also a description of the way Christ is active in our life even now. And so if you want to understand him or you want to understand you, you need to be pretty serious, I think, about reading Scripture. That whole bit St. Jerome has about how ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ, 
is because he says the power of God. And without reading scripture, you don't know the power of God. You know, a really concrete manifestation of this. One of the easiest traps to fall into is to say, I'm too wicked to be forgiven. I'm too wicked to be um, a, a useful or productive member of the church. But then you look at the type of people Christ chose to associate with and chose to use for the gospel. And you say, oh, okay, that, that excuse turned out to be pretty invalid. It seems like almost a precondition to have a pretty lousy life. Exactly. Drunks, murderers, fornicators. Tax collectors, yeah. Those are God's favorites, apparently. I actually recently heard a, a surprisingly good homily. It started out, and I thought it was going to be cheesy, but it was just saying if there was a PR department, or an HR department, rather, um, who was tasked with doing background reports on each of the apostles to screen them for employment, about the only one who would have passed muster is Judas. He's the only one with any fiscal sense and maturity. And, of course, it doesn't work out so well for him. Very, very true. Earlier, you were speaking about the comparison between the hope of heaven for all eternity with the temporary happiness that comes from sin. And it reminded me of the great divorce. Because in that story, again and again, it's kind of heartbreaking, really. You see people who are on the threshold of heaven and then turn away, all for the very simple reason that they have something that they want to take with them into heaven, a souvenir from hell of which they just can't let go. And in the opening of that book, Lewis says that you can't take all luggage on all journeys. He says sometimes you might actually even need to leave behind an eye or a hand, alluding there to Jesus' words in the gospel, where he says it's better to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand and enter eternal life, rather than go whole-bodied, but go to Gehenna. Yeah, I'd say that uh, one of the overlooked New Testament passages we do well to turn to in a serious way are the passages related to the cost of discipleship. That Christ regularly says, either give everything or don't bother. And that is the terrifying thing about Christianity, is that this is the best deal you'll ever get in your life. He offers you all of his life in exchange for all of yours, and his life is infinitely better and infinitely more glorious. But he's not going to give you all of his life in exchange for 98% of yours. It's a total exchange or nothing. And so famously, in Revelation, he refers to the lukewarm and says he wants to spit them out of his mouth. Better to be hot or cold. Uh, he does this other places as well in the Gospels. He talks about if you're going to go to war and you've got an army of 10,000 against an army of 20,000, you'd need to strategize. Is it possible to win this fight? The fact that he describes the life of holiness in those terms, where you're going to feel outgunned and outmatched, and you need to think long and hard about whether you're willing to give it all you've got, uh, I think should be a wake-up call for us. Because think about it, if you had an army of 10,000, and there's an army of 20,000 headed your way, and you said, oh, I'll give 8,000 troops to commit to this, that's the worst military strategy you could come up with. You either go all out, guns blazing, and take on this two-to-one fight, or you go and make peace. And that's what holiness is. You either go out all out guns blazing against the forces of evil who outmatch you and are stronger than you. Or you make peace with the world and live a life of mediocrity and then die and go to hell. Being lazy in the pursuit of holiness there doesn't really sound quite so great when painted in those terms. I, I mean, I get why they're overlooked New Testament passages. As you know from mere Christianity, 
Lewis has a really interesting take on the passage where Jesus says, be ye perfect. I never understood it quite that way before, but I think his interpretation has got some real value to it. It's also got more than a passing connection to theosis. Lewis says that when Jesus told us to be perfect, he was effectively saying, there won't be any parts of sin left for you to hang on to. You won't be able to smuggle any of it into heaven. Yeah, and it requires that transformation. And it is terrifying. Um, I mentioned that uh, I'm getting married in under a month. And there's a sort of parallel there. And this is a parallel that the New Testament authors don't shy away from. I think that the relationship between Christ and the church as bride and bridegroom is one that, uh, you know, St. Paul's use of it in Ephesians 5 is beautiful and exposes something about exactly this. It, it's a total gift. If I said, I will forego all other romantic relationships except one or two, <laughs> that would not be good enough, right? Yeah, I can't really see your fiancé going for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There can't be these kind of strings attached. But that's what it is. We want to have Christ as the bridegroom of the soul while still having a little bit of infidelity on the side. And a little bit of infidelity is, is just, it's contrary. I mean, the word means unfaithfulness. It's contrary to faith. So faith is fidelity. Like it's a total gift to God or it's nothing. At the talk you gave in San Diego, I think one of the major themes which really struck people was the relationship between our understanding of theosis and our understanding of suffering. Would you mind just unpacking that a little bit? Yeah, so if Christ is making present uh, the mysteries of his life, those aren't always fun mysteries. I mean, read the New Testament. And you'll see that there's a great deal of suffering that goes on there. And so I already mentioned in the scriptural passages we looked at before uh, that, for example, in Romans 8, when St. Paul says that we'll be fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So another way of saying that is if we will follow Christ to Calvary, if we'll follow him to Good Friday, he will take us to Easter Sunday and he'll take us to the Ascension. But it takes a whole lot of guts and faith to be willing to follow him even in that time of suffering. That's kind of the bad news. The good news is you're going to suffer either way. That's not okay. That's not <laughs> the good news yet. The good news is given that you're going to suffer either way, this suffering is for something. It's the difference between stomach pains and birth pangs. They both hurt, but one of them you can say, oh, but it was totally worth it at the end. You're not just hurting for no reason. It's some new life is being brought to fruition. So these are sort of spiritual birth pangs. And it hurts. And no one should be able to tell you otherwise. Anyone who says it's not going to hurt is lying to you. Because scripture says it's going to hurt. But if you follow him through, it'll be worth it. And this is, I think, another beautiful image in the great divorce. The lancing uh, that happens with the, the little lizard on the shoulder. You know, he, he didn't say it wouldn't hurt. He just said, like, you'll get through it and it'll be better, but it's going to hurt along the way. Um, and Hebrews 2, which I mentioned also before, notes that Christ comes to his glory through suffering and death. And that he did this to be the first among many brethren and a pioneer of our salvation. In other words, there's sometimes this idea in certain Christian theologies that kind of says, Jesus suffered so I don't have to. 
he had the cross, so I don't have to have the cross. It was a substitute for me. Scripture says Christ suffered as a pioneer so we can take up our cross and follow him. And so we don't get out of the cross because Christ has his cross. But the cross wouldn't mean anything unless Christ had had his cross. So now our crosses become imitations of Christ. And we become configured to his death so we can be configured to his glory eternally. Returning to that episode with the lizard and the great divorce, the lizard was symbolic of the man's lust. And it was a source of great embarrassment to him as he drew near heaven. But after the angel kills the lizard, it transforms into a magnificent stallion, which the man then uses to gallop into heaven. Yeah, this is one of the best, I think, proofs for sanctity and for theosis, is just to watch the saints versus people who've given themselves completely over to their passions. You know, I think if any of us were to say, okay, I want you to think of someone you know who has no willpower, someone who says yes to every bodily urge, and I want you to tell me if that person's happy. If, if you're being honest and you have any sort of awareness of their life, you know that they're not a happy person. And I know that without knowing them. And I think you probably know enough people to know it's not just a coincidence that giving in to every lustful urge or every gluttonous or drunken urge, every greedy impulse, every prideful impulse, all of those things, when you live a life as a slave to those things, it dominates you, it destroys you. But all of those things are corruptions of real goods. You know, Christ gave us food and drink and one another uh, that we should enjoy creation, but in a healthy and restrained and disciplined way. And so one of the proofs for what he's offering is just looking at people who lead a disciplined, well-ordered life now versus ones who don't in seeing who really is happier. And overwhelmingly, it's clear that this difficult discipline uh, really does lead to happiness. And so sanctity is really, it's kind of consonant with all of those hard truths that we know, you know, about things like diet and exercise, about things like studying for tests, about things like working hard for any good, um, even investing in a romantic relationship, right? Like there are going to be ups and downs and it's not going to be easy. A person who's content to always do the easy thing and never do a difficult thing is a person who will never find true and abiding happiness at any deep level. And if you know that about all of the other goods in your life, then when Christ says, this is a great good, but it's going to be difficult, you should be able to say, oh, of course, that's how every other great good has been in my life. How would you respond to the person who complains that you spend a lot of time talking about what you do, you know, what the, the person does or does not do, which makes it sound like all of the onus of work is on us rather than God. Well, it's true. There are a couple ways of understanding uh, kind of what's going on, because it's true. We are being transformed, as St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. We are being transformed, being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. So in that sense, we can describe it more in the passive voice of what Christ is doing to us or what the Spirit is doing to us. But there's also this real participation in the life of sanctity, that the saints aren't just the beneficiaries of grace in a passive way, but they cooperate with it. For example, I mentioned Romans 8 earlier. 
Right before that, in the midst of that, he says, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. So it's, it's collaborative. And so the, the actions we take, like, for example, just crying out to God the Father in prayer, that is an action that you can take or you can resist. But if you take that action, it's been enabled by the Holy Spirit. So if you want a good distinction, there are certain theologies that would get rid of any sort of cooperation on the part of man. And we would say that that's an incomplete picture, that grace enables and creates freedom. You know, 2 Corinthians 3, I mentioned a second ago, now, St. Paul says in there as well, that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So it's not that the devil was compelling us and sin was compelling us, and now God is compelling us. No, God empowers and liberates and frees us. So it's the difference between being thrown in the air and given the gift of flight. You know, like if you think of grace almost like a jetpack, you can't do it by yourself, but you have some cooperation with it. You're not just being hurtled through the air uncontrollably. Uh, and which is exactly why uh, people can stop cooperating. One of the things that I think really proves this is, in a grim way, people who once cooperated with grace and then stop. Um, I'm thinking here, for example, of Samuel Templeton, who co-founded Billy Graham's crusade and brought in numerous people to Christ and then himself fell away from the faith and died an atheist. Now, there's no way that I see of making sense of that, unless the man at some point said no to grace. Unless God decided, you know what, I don't really want you in heaven after all. I uh, got to know you a little bit, don't really like you, sorry. <laughs> Harsh. So, you know, obviously, you can't just say, well, it's all God in such a way that uh, leaves God responsible for people who fall away. Because they're falling away from something they experience. Second Peter 2 is all about people who were ransomed by Christ, cooperated for a while, and then like dogs returning to their vomit, fell away and ended up worse than before their conversion. And the only way they can be understood is if they made some free decision uh, contrary to grace, which means that grace is something cooperative, which is why we, uh, we proclaim with the Spirit, Abba, Father. And in the words of the Eucharistic liturgy, to do everything through him, with him, and in him. Exactly. You know, there's one thing, if I may just throw something out. When we were talking about why this matters, we talked about why it matters for sanctity, why it matters for the Christian life, in terms of our own glorification. But C.S. Lewis in Weight of Glory, he says, maybe, in theory, we could talk too much about that. He doesn't think that's possible. But he says what well, we can't talk too much about is the glorification of your neighbor. I'm going to just quote, if I may. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinies. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. And then he says, there are no 
ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. He ends the sermon by saying, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way, for in him also Christ very latitat, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. Ah, a magnificent sermon. It really is. And I only am quoting the last two paragraphs. You really, like, anyone listening to this who likes Lewis or glorification or both, you would not be badly served. You can find the entire thing online just searching for the weight of glory. Just that line there, you know no mortals. Yeah. Throughout mere Christianity, Lewis comes back to this idea again and again. The idea that we are made to live forever. And that has some serious consequences. We're going to be turning step by step, either into an increasingly heavenly creature or a hellish creature. But either way, we will be becoming, in the truest sense of the word, something awesome. It is. It truly, truly is awesome. And something that just is mind-blowing to think about. And it's a, a distinction that we've lost. And if you lose this, if you lose the sense of the glory and immortality for, for which we're all called, uh, you end up losing the essential distinction, even between man and animal. And so there are a million different ways we see this in the world around us, where we're expected to live, reproduce, and die like animals and like nothing more. And you've got people calling their animals their children and saying they're dog moms and things like this. <laughs> and some of it's obviously analogous and jokey, but some of it I think really does point to uh, a lack of distinction that, no, no, the baby over there has an immortal soul made for heavenly glory, and the dog is a dog. And that dog is not meant to be Saint Dog, Saint Fido the Great or some. Like, it's... <laughs> wait, wait, no. Don't you have St. Bernard dogs? <laughs> I think I've just found a flaw in your theory. St. Bernard hopefully enjoys those jokes. So how can people find out more about the work you do? The website, the podcast? Exactly. So there's three ways. Um, you can read my stuff at shamelesspopery.com. It'll sometimes appear in other places randomly, but I try to always link on Shameless Popery as kind of a hub. Uh, you can listen to my podcast with Chloe Langer on cathpod.com. It's the Catholic Podcast is the name of the podcast, and it's available most places you can get podcasts. And then the final way, especially if you live in Northeast Kansas, I work for Holy Family School of Faith Institute, and we do parish talks. We do large groups, small groups. We even have groups that meet in people's homes, and we'd love to meet you to, you know, carry on this conversation in person. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. As always, I'm walking away from our conversation a little wiser than I was before, and I hope to have you back sometime in season two. And listeners, please feel free to send us your feedback on Twitter and Instagram at Pints with Jack or on the contact form on RestlessPilgrim.net. And Joe, if you wouldn't mind helping me with a sign-off. 
further up and further in <laughs> cheers cheers